My name is Kyle, and this is Uplift. It's the conversation, and it's also Anchor Point. Glad you found us and glad that you're here. We're in a series called Counselor, Comforter, Keeper. Uh, those three words are featured in a song called Wonderful, Merciful Savior. Beautiful song, actually. And this is just a teaching series on the Holy Spirit, on the breath of God as the word for spirit can be translated in the New Testament. And you know, when you're surrounded by the breath of God, uh, the air you breathe is going to be a little different. It's going to be a little different. You're going to get a different outcome in your life when you breathe in the air of God. You're, you're breathing purity. You're breathing holiness. You're living in purity and living in holiness. And that breath, it changes the way that your body operates. Uh, and you didn't really affect this change. You didn't do it on your own. Your energy source, the air that you breathe, is going to give you the power to live differently, the power to change. And that's really the idea that I want to convey in this series on the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit of God, the breath of God, is empowering in ways that can't necessarily be quantified. Let me give you, for instance, we, we know the, the mechanics of physical breathing. Let's talk about breathing for a minute. You kind of know how this works. Your chest expands and it allows air into your lungs and it fills your bronchial tubes where your oxygen passes to your blood vessels with hemoglobin. You remember all that from high school, Don? I'm sure Don remembers that from his days in high school. Oxygen-rich blood is then pumped to the rest of your body. Keeps you alive. That's pretty impressive. Our bodies are miracles. Bodies are absolute miracles. And, and just think about this. We can't see the oxygen. We, we don't really understand it. But here's what we do know about breathing. It's an automatic feature in our bodies. It's automatic. Breathing is something that newborn babies do without thinking about. It. Well, have you ever thought about that? Healthy babies breathe spontaneously. Never taught to do that. Breathing is not something that we learn how to do. It's not something we learn. Breathing the breath of God, the Spirit of God, operates the same way. We can't, we can't generally understand it. We can't really quantify it, which, if we're going to be honest, can make it a a source of friction in a very right-brained, analytical, analog world where every idea has to carry the burden of proof. I can't tell you exactly how it happens that we breathe God's breath, that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. I can't tell you how that happens, but I do know it when I see it. And I know the moment that I first breathe the breath of God, and I know the moment when others are breathing the breath of God, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And just like physical breathing, it's an absolute miracle that that happens. I want to share with you a story of one of those miracles, and by doing so, I want to recommend a book to you. Let me show you a picture of it. This book is called The Insanity of God. You might want to take a picture of it. You might want to write it down. It's by an author named Nick Ripken, I had a chance actually to interview Nick Ripken about seven or eight years ago. Unbelievable, unbelievable man. And this is an unbelievable book. And I have to sort of give you a caveat. I don't recommend books very often. Books are, you know, subject to opinions. I have about seven or eight that I would pass on in a moment. This is one of them. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and even say it's one of the most influential books that I have personally ever read. Ministering in a hard place for a season in my life, this book meant a lot to me. Let me give you a little bit of information about Nick Ripken and his wife, Ruth. In fact, that's not even his real name. He was in some dangerous places. So his author name, his pseudonym is Nick Ripken. 
But Nick and his wife, Ruth, and their three children served believers for 32 years in hard places, from Malawi to South Africa, even to Somalia. They served the church in some of the most dangerous places in the world. And in Somalia, they lost their 16-year-old son who passed away on Easter Sunday. Since that time, since 1998, they've traveled the world to serve and to learn from those who are persecuted for following Jesus. If you go on Nick's website, he says that he did this to, quote, learn how to recapture a biblical missiology of witness and house church planting in the midst of persecution and martyrdom. So for a season in their life, they interviewed over 600 believers in persecution in more than 70 countries. And this book is their story, and it's pretty fantastic. In this book is the particular story I'm about to tell you. Near the end of the book, we've walked with Nick through this book in really hard places, and he is now on a trip through Southeast Asia. Got a trip planned there. On his way there, he gets an email from a doctor who is in an undisclosed country. Nick also didn't disclose the names or places where he went to protect believers in those places. There's also a movie about his life. You can find that on Lifeway. It's a retelling of this book. Here's the email that he got from this doctor. Dr. Ripken, I've heard about the research that you're doing from a friend I knew and worked closely with in Somalia some years ago. I believe that the Lord needs you to come here. And he mentions, he doesn't mention the place. He he leaves it blank, but he named the name of his border town where he was. Nick refused to go. He'd already had this trip plan. He was going to Vietnam and Thailand and Cambodia. So he emailed the doctor and said, you know what? I can't do it now, but maybe I'll come the following year. Um, I'm in the middle of a trip. Except when he sent that email, he got a reply from the same doctor who was insistent this time, a little more forcefully, that Nick come as soon as possible. Nick refused again. He couldn't go. Maybe his refusal was a little more forceful, but then he received word that the pastors that he had planned to visit on this trip, at least on one part of this trip, 18 of them were all imprisoned. Extraordinary turn of events there. So he changes his schedule, decides to meet with some other pastors, and he still gets another email from the doctor that says, I really think you need to come. But this next group of people with whom he was supposed to meet were either imprisoned or died in a car wreck, or were under tight surveillance. So Nick began to think that maybe he wasn't supposed to be in Southeast Asia. So he responded back to the doctor and said, you know what, I'm going to come. I'm going to come see you. So he arrived. Again, the country's not disclosed in the book. But he gets off the airplane and walks up to the man in the airport. But the man is surrounded by five other men, strangers, a little surprising. So Nick and the doctor begin to talk, and they begin to realize that the five other men there are not with either one of them. Nick didn't invite them, nor did the doctor. So at that point, Nick's been in some tough spots. And he says in the book, I, I kind of got a sense that this might be a dangerous situation. He says in the book, I, I really hastily went back into the airport, tried to book the next flight out because I, I didn't want to be caught here and I didn't know what was going on. But as he was doing so, one of the five men could speak English and stopped him and said, we are followers of Jesus. 
So Nick was still a little reluctant, but he decided to listen to their brief story, and then he went with them to a room, a rented room close by. And through one of the men who was interpreting for the others, they all told Nick that each of them had had a spiritual dream or a spiritual vision that pushed them to find some answers about what they were dreaming or seeing. Each of the five also, from different places, by the way, miraculously found a copy of the Bible. And each of them on their own, and they were all Muslim, by the way, after reading, they decided to follow Jesus. But because they were Muslim, that put them in great danger. They were rejected by their families. They had to flee their country, and they all wound up in the same town, this same town, where they all miraculously found each other. They didn't know each other before they were there. And in that space and time, they began to study daily and pray and encourage each other, but they began to pray specifically for someone to come to them to teach them about persecution. Is this a normal experience for following Jesus? They needed someone to teach them about the church. And then on the particular day that Nick flew in, they sensed a leaning by the Holy Spirit on that very day to go to the airport and talk to the first Caucasian man that got off the plane, which happened to be Nick Rifkin. I mean, Nick was kind of floored. He's had experiences like this, but this was, again, another unique. And in that room, Nick decided to teach and talk. And he opened his Bible, and he read to them from Acts of the Apostles, and he read to them the story of Philip and the Ethiopian. And as he was reading, he asked out loud how these men, of all the things that he had heard, his question to God was, how did these guys in Muslim countries miraculously find copies of the Bible? And he felt a leaning from the Holy Spirit telling him that God's been in the business of making sure people receive his word for a long time. Now that story feels like it's taken right out of the pages of the New Testament. But it's true. True story. And it's a story of what happens when people breathe freely the breath of God. Supernatural things happen. Inexplicable things happen to them. And also happen through them. So here's what I want to do. I want to zoom in for a minute on the Macedonian town of Thessalonica. I have a map. I want to show you this map. And in Thessalonica, I want to talk about what happened in this city in the first century of Western civilization in the era of the New Testament. Let me give you a little bit of history about Thessalonica. About 150 years before Jesus, all of Macedonia, all of the region that you see here, including the town of Thessalonica, was completely defeated and decimated by the Romans. And to ensure that Macedonia would never be a threat, Rome took all of its money, all of its wealth, all of its resources, and locked down the economy so much that the region and the city became extremely impoverished. They wanted to make sure that this empire that produced Alexander of Macedon, Alexander the Great, was defeated and demoralized and never be a threat again. But because of that, Thessalonica became a place where investment could flourish. So a group of wealthy people moved from the city of Rome to Thessalonica during this era, and they began to invest their money. They put their money to use in the city. In fact, 
They became famous, and archaeologists have discovered a significant number of inscriptions. I have a picture of one of them. A significant number of inscriptions to honor these people. This inscription, by the way, this block of stone came from Thessalonica. And on this block of stone are the names of these people, these investors. They were called benefactors. They were called benefactors. And alongside their name were phrases that described the city of Rome as a god. This cult grew up around these people with its own priesthood. These people on this stone, they were worshipped. This was normal life in Thessalonica, and it was life in the city of Rome, or I'm sorry, the empire. People invested these benefactors, these politarchs, with expectations. And this was a system called patronage. You've probably seen this or heard of this before. It was the business equivalent of a kingdom. Benefactors were kings, and the recipients of their investments were citizens in this economic kingdom. And the hard truth of this is that the citizens of these cities, they didn't work for themselves. There was no room for improvement or social ladders to climb. They didn't work for their community. They lived and they operated to enhance the lives of those whose money kept the city functioning. In this system, there existed nothing greater than this. Not for the citizens or even the benefactors. This was it. This bureaucracy was the religion. And their pagan gods, they existed only to reinforce this system. But then Paul shows up, this disruptor, and he shared with them this news about Jesus, about a real God, a real God who died, who came back to life, and who destroyed the idols of commerce and debt and favors and fear. And that this God, his death and his resurrection, it was actually attested by eyewitnesses, and even Paul himself. In fact, scholars believe that Paul spent somewhere between a few weeks and a few months in Thessalonica, and then he left. He left, but upon leaving, he starts to hear about what had happened in this city in his absence. And so he wrote a letter. The letter that we have is the letter of 1 Thessalonians. He wrote him a letter of encouragement in which we find a significant description. And, and honestly, it's maybe the first. 1 Thessalonians is probably the first book of the New Testament ever written in the first letter that Paul wrote. We find this significant first description of what happens to people when they are filled with the Spirit of God, with the breath of God. So for the next few minutes, I want to do a couple of things. First, I want to show you what happens to you when you are filled with the Spirit, with the breath of God. And then I want to show you what happens through you when you're filled with the Spirit, with the breath of God. So verses first, let's talk about what happens to you when you breathe the breath of God. And to this, we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It's printed in your orders of worship. It's also on the screen. Here we go, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, pay attention to this, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know what happens to you 
when you're filled with the Spirit, with the breath of God, you have the power to become an imitator of Jesus. And that's not insignificant. Now, before we talk about this imitation, though, we have to kind of talk about what gets us there, because Paul mentions this really significant word. It's the word power. We have to talk about this power that makes this possible. It's in verses 4 and 5 here. We know, brothers and sisters, that God's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power in the Holy Spirit. This is an extraordinary claim from Paul that the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God, comes to us with power. There's something that happens. The breath of God gives us the power to imitate Jesus. In other words, the life of Jesus is not some lofty goal. His life is not some unreachable apex of human existence. It's not just an ideal toward which we strive. It's a life that actually can be imitated. But we have to admit here that we cannot do this on our own. We are woefully unprepared to imitate Jesus. We have to have, we require a supernatural power to do this. And Paul actually had a pretty interesting view of the supernatural power that accompanies the breath of God. By the time that Paul wrote this letter, just to kind of give you and frame this in the story of Paul, he had already completed his first missionary journey through Galatia, and he was in the middle of his second missionary journey. He's done a lot, done a lot. He's planted numerous churches. He's seen miracles. He's performed miracles. And he's also been severely persecuted and physically injured for the sake of the gospel. So when he sits down and he writes this letter, he's had tons of experience with the power that comes from the Spirit of God. Five years after he wrote this letter, he wrote another one. The letter that we call 1 Corinthians. Let me show you what he wrote to them. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, first five verses. And I, when I came to you, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom. We're not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit. Look what he says. And of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We're getting closer to this, this power, this definition of this power. Here he admits his own inadequacy was transformed by this power that comes from the Spirit of God. And a year after he wrote this letter, so this is six years after he wrote the letter to the Thessalonians, he wrote the letter of Romans. He talks about this power again. This is in Romans chapter 15, a couple of verses, verse 18 and 19. For I will not venture to speak, he wrote, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power, now here it is, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, that so from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Again, now listen, listen, Paul was no, no stranger to the supernatural, okay? Signs and wonders 
by the way, what a great phrase for miracles. Signs and wonders are possible. They're even probable with the Spirit of God. And I want you to hear me very carefully with what I'm about to say. Listen carefully. I've experienced signs and wonders. I have experienced miraculous things that are only explained by something greater. In my life, I've been sick hundreds, maybe thousands of times if you count every little stopped up nose. But twice in my life, I have been miraculously healed. Didn't happen all the time. Happened twice. Natural law bends at the power of the supernatural. But it bends in more ways than just healings and things that we can't explain, that we see but we don't understand. And even Paul knew this, absolutely knew it. He actually knew that this supernatural power came in different packages. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians. Look at chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Having an experience in the power of God, listen, this defines our imitation. You don't merely agree to what or who Jesus is. You follow him and you imitate him and you treasure him when it's tough, that's the phrase. Look at this phrase, in much affliction. Let me tell you, there's no power in the world greater than this. None. Greater than the power that enables you to trust and believe in the midst of attacks greater than your, even, than your own comprehension. Nothing is more powerful than this. And I want you to make no mistake, this is a supernatural power. Our sinful natures are best, are seen best in the Garden of Eden when when Adam and Eve, in, in the choicest of all possible human experiences, still defied God. We're born sinners. We're born rebellious. It takes a new kind of air to change our operational status. When you breathe the air of God, when you withstand persecution without retaliation, when you accept hard news with hope, when you see disaster as opportunity for a creative God to move, when you experience affliction with joy, you know that you've received the Spirit of God. Who does this? Who smiles in pain? Only those whose lungs are filled with the holy breath. That is the power of God, and that's what happens to you. But there's something else, and it's what happens through you. What happens through you is this. You become an influencer for Jesus, an influencer. Let's read this together. First Thessalonians, the latter part of this passage, beginning in chapter 7. You became an example, Paul wrote, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. What an amazing testimony. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you 
and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers from the wrath to come. The spirit of God moves through you to others, even if this is not your primary goal. It's the natural expression of a changed life. Nobody has to tell you to talk about Jesus. You just do it. And what's most astounding here is this, that this is the first and only time in the entire New Testament that a group of people, a group, together, collectively, are noted as influencers. Paul talks a lot about individuals. This is the first time a group was. This was a corporate miracle. The exceptionalness of one person multiplied in their city which then multiplied in their region. Look, they were positioned on a major highway. They were a major port city. It was the capital of the region. In other words, they were uniquely positioned for such an accolade. In fact, I'm going to show you a Greek word. It's the Greek word, and I don't even know if I want to pronounce it. Exeketai. How about that? You wouldn't even know if I got it wrong. Exeketai. This is the original word for the phrase in that passage, sounded forth. When Paul wrote that the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you in verse 8, it's the word for this. Let me tell you about this word. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. Only time. So to get some context, scholars have to go outside the New Testament and other Greek literature and find out what that word means. In, In other Greek literature, it was used to describe, get this, this is so cool, a massive clap of thunder. Oh man, that's, that's something. A surprising loud sound that wakes you at night, makes you pay attention, that alerts you. That's the kind of message that came from Thessalonica because of the Spirit of God. You had to pay attention to it. This is not a mealy, meager experience of believing in Jesus. It's not an experience that's self-centered and concerned just with our problems. This is a bold experience that thunders its way through a group of people, through an entire region, and influences others they don't even know, nor have they even seen. This is what happens. This is what happens when you breathe the breath of God. You become an influencer. I'm stealing that word from social media. That's what happens here. And it all hinges on this singular, inexplicable moment of belief, that moment that can't be explained or defined or quantified, but you know that something miraculous takes place and it captures you and demands that you'll never be the same again. And like a newborn baby who breathes for the first time, the Spirit of God, is the air that we are made to breathe. Praise Jesus for that.